good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Last week, I started the sermon off by saying that I had five points, and if you were taking notes, you would have realized that I only had four. And so this week, I'm going to bring the fifth. Um, we are finishing up really this section, and Blake will bring chapter one to a conclusion next week. But as we look at this particular section, we're continuing our conversation about idolatry. And just to kind of give a brief recap, what you have in Romans chapter one is this refrain of the glory of the immortal God, the one who has created a salvation that is able to save the most wretched souls on the planet to such a degree that they would be called righteous and not just bear any righteousness, not just bear some manifested fleshly righteousness, but instead, as Romans 1, 16 and 17 would teach us, that they would bear the righteousness of God. Now, this is the loftiest form of righteousness. It is, in essence, true righteousness and anything else is a degrading form, really no form at all. And as you read through Romans 1, I think there's, a, there's an immediate and natural refrain as you bring to a conclusion this blessed section and you read Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And it seems to me that the next section should simply be a, a, a doxology of worship and praise for the God who is able to save to the most. But what is most interesting is that Paul begins to make his way into this argument, make his way into this statement of dealing with idolatry. Because even in light of this blessed, glorious news that there is a gospel that saves to the uttermost, it is still the natural inclination of man to worship idols since the fall. We create for ourselves idols. We look at these things that God has created. We look at the creature and we say, I'll bow to the creature instead of the creator. And this is a travesty. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word. It is an absolute abomination to God to worship something that he has created as opposed to the creator himself. And so Paul begins to do an examination of this. And last week, you'll recall that I said, and it was my aim to grow us in a hatred for idolatry. And brothers and sisters, there should be a great hatred for idolatry. For it attacks the man as a whole and ultimately assaults the glory of God. It says, I will worship the creature rather than the creator. But Paul does something in this particular text that is rather interesting. He gives us an illustration. And this illustration that he gives is in particularly in regard to sexual immorality. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is run us through this illustration. I want us to understand that God does, God has placed a living illustration of idolatry in our world today. And that living illustration is sexual immorality. And as we'll see even further, finds its full embodiment in homosexuality. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, and I'm sure that, any, that everyone's ears perked up when we hit that topic. Brothers and sisters, let me make this clear. God has clearly spoken in regard to idolatry, and He has clearly spoken, very clearly spoken in regard to sexual immorality and homosexuality as well. He is just as clear in idolatry as He is on these other issues. Now, I know that this is one of those topics that our culture has taken in, and brothers and sisters, I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think we're in need of more correction than we think. We truly believe, I'm convinced, we have been more molded by our culture than we will ever admit. 
We have taken something that God has spoken clearly on and we, had ma- and we have made it palatable. We have made it acceptable. And if anyone brings any charge against this, it is all of a sudden immediately bringing them to the point of cancellation. Now, can I say that my hope this morning is to grow you in a couple of things. First, it is to grow you in your hatred of idolatry. Once again, secondly, believe it or not, my hope is to exalt biblical sexuality. Because I think, I'm convinced that the best way to understand both idolatry and also to understand the appropriate use of sexual intimacy in our world is to understand God's good design for it. And if we do that, then I think we can see the heinousness of the others. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Romans chapter one. We're gonna make our way verse 18 through 26. And I would remind you, brothers and sisters, and this is important today, This is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning dealing with a topic that we are ever constantly pressed in on by our culture. May we only be malleable to the hands of our maker. Lord, may it be that even as we see this, even as we deal with these topics, Lord, that we would see in them our own trespass, that we would see our idolatry and abhor it, that we would see our desire to flee from that which is good, that good and precious design that you have given us, Lord, not only in regard to sexual intimacy, but perhaps even more, Lord, in regard to worship. Lord, that you have guarded both of these things behind covenants. And Lord, may we see them and may we rejoice in the way that you have designed them And Lord, may we exult, may we delight in the prescriptions that you've given. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. So like I said, what we're dealing with is an illustration that Paul gives us. And and I do wanna point out a couple of things because there is a hermeneutic. There's a way that we're reading this particular text that is important. So Paul deals with this concept of sexual immorality in a couple of places, obviously, in the scriptures. But I want to point out two in particular because there's language in these two particular texts that help us understand Paul's argument here. Because it it perhaps would be jarring as you read through this if you don't understand Paul's basic understanding of idolatry and also in regard to sexual morality. You read through this and you're seeing that Paul is dealing with idolatry. He's making clear that it is unacceptable altogether and perhaps even laughable to consider worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But as you get to this next section in regard to the degrading of their bodies and exchanging natural relationships for unnatural ones, it almost seems as though there's this really rapid shift in purpose. But that's not the case at all. 
As a matter of fact, the exact same purpose is still being focused on. The exact same purpose is still being driven home. And the reason we know this is because Paul makes these two statements in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, and also in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to what this, these two verses say. Ephesians 5, But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, the reason I bring these two points up is because what you essentially have in covetousness and sexual morality is essentially looking at the God who created you and saying, I want something different. I deny your design altogether, which by the way, is the exact opposite of worship. And it is important that we define that term. As we consider worship, worship is ascribing due honor, glory, and power to the one who made you. It is looking at him and saying exactly what he says of himself to him. It is saying you have all authority, all power, all dominion, and we recognize and exult in that. We rejoice in that power and authority and dominion. Covetousness and sexual immorality essentially do the opposite. It says, no, 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 we deny your authority. We deny your power. We deny everything that you say is beautiful and we will have it the way that we desire. It is an assault on his glory. And brothers and sisters, this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is that covetousness. Idolatry is that sexual immorality that says, yes, most certainly the Lord designed the body for himself, but we will use it however we see fit. It's an assault on his lordship. And the the opposite of that assault on his lordship is the recognition of it and the delight in it. And so what I want to do is I want to walk us through these two particular illustrations that he gives. And then I want to, on the back end of this, help us understand both worship and sexual intimacy in the way that God has designed it so that we can delight in it. And I am convinced that brothers and sisters, the greatest way to wage war on any evil is to delight in what God has called good. And if we delight in what God has called good, when evil comes, it does not even grab our attention or our focus. There's a reason that we say things like, let nothing dazzle me but Christ. Because if he dazzles us, if his design is good and perfect and right and lovely, then how can our gaze be, be yanked away from him? And so let's examine what the apostle uses to illustrate idolatry. He starts in Romans 1, 24 through 25. This is the living illustration of sexual immorality. It says, Romans 1, 24 through 25, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their body among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, perhaps you ask the question, well, where is sexual immorality in this? I want you to notice that word impurity. Last week I told you that one of the great assaults against God is essentially to mar that image that we bear cover it, make it filthy, cover it in sin, because we know that the opposite of God and his glory is sin and its wickedness. And so what is it that we do? We begin to degrade our bodies. We begin to assault it with all forms of immorality, but it seems as though there is a natural inclination toward sexual immorality when idolatry is present. And that word impurity is most normatively used in regard to sexual immorality, most normatively. And I think in the context of our particular text this morning, it would be foolish not to assume that, the, that, is, that, that is the case that what you have here is this giving them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to this sexual immorality. And it goes on to say to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And so this does lead us to an important question. How does, how does sexual immorality dishonor the body and the creator? 
I mean, genuinely, I think when you look at our culture in particular, we exalt sexual intimacy and perhaps better yet promiscuity to such a degree that we would call it good when ultimately what the scripture is articulating is that not only is it evil, it is an assault on self and an assault on the creator. And so how is that the case? If it seems so good, and brothers and sisters, I think we do well to even note that the physical act that we're making reference to here, God calls good when it's inside the confines of marriage. And so what is the distinction? The distinction is that it is ultimately an assault on all that is godly and good inside of that physical act. It wages a war against it and it says, we will have the act that you have given us, but we will remove all that is good and godly from it and have only the remnant, only the shell of it. And so what are some of those examples? First, it removes all that is godly and good by the rejection of God's command for sexual intimacy and setting our own guidelines. It is ultimately an assault on his authority and the exaltation of self. Brothers and sisters, isn't it interesting that God has placed unique barriers around this gift? I mean, really clear barriers. He has guarded it and he has guarded it intentionally first and foremost because he has an intended design behind it, which we'll see a little bit later. But secondly, for our good. He blocks, he guards, he protects us from our own depravity by essentially setting up guidelines and saying, this is the means by which you will enjoy this gift and you will have it in no other way. And so what is it doing when we look to the creator who has designed this good gift for us and we say, we'll have it the way that we want to? Do not be fooled. That is not you giving in to natural inclinations. That is you assaulting the sovereignty and right to rule that our God has. It is saying, I have a better design. I have a better good. And ultimately what you see happening inside of sexual immorality is saying, no, 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 we will not have it the way that you have designed. We will make it something of our own. And so what is it that is made when we take the good gifts of God and turn it to evil? Because this is the second means by which we remove all that is godly and good from it. We make it iniquitous. Now, this is an important word. It's a word that we often perhaps gloss over. There's three basic ways that we understand sin. Sin, trespass, and iniquity. You've heard this before. Sin is missing the mark. Trespassing is there's a clear command, a law, and we cross it. But iniquity is perhaps Satan's favorite. Iniquity is taking the good, and, the good and perfect gifts of God and twisting it and making it something wicked. Can you imagine? I mean, think about all the good and blessed gifts that our Lord has given to us. Do you know that food does not need to taste good for you to be nourished by it? And yet we indulge to such a degree that we harm our bodies. We've taken the good gifts of God and we make it iniquity. You can take drink, you can take pretty much anything good gifts that God has given us in this world and we can make it evil. We are excellent at making good gifts of God wicked. Excellent. It is no surprise that Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you're of your father, the devil. For we take after him in our iniquity. We take the good and precious gifts that God has given us and we warp them. We make them something wicked when they were intended to be good. Can you imagine his frown upon this? He has given a good and perfect gift to his people, a gift for enjoyment, a gift to fulfill the commission that he gives us in the creation account. And we have turned it against him, essentially said, it will be my God. Can you imagine the the anger, the righteous anger that results from such a thing. And so we take the good gifts of God and we twist them and we make them wicked. How is sexual immorality harming a war against God? How is it wicked? It is iniquitous. It takes the good gifts of God and makes them wicked. Thirdly, it removes all that is godly and good by giving it to those who are unworthy and subjecting the body to harm. Hear me, I'm speaking in particularly of sexual immorality and adultery or fornication or something of the like. And it takes the good gift that God has given you that is reserved for really genuinely one, 
and we give it out freely, you hear me, you treat it as cheap. We treat it as something that really bears no significance or glory or beauty. And instead, we throw it around and ultimately what we see resulting is actual harm done to the body. And I could give illustration after illustration, but perhaps every single one of them is rather coarse. Brothers and sisters, there's a great harm that we do to our body when we, when we use the good gifts that God has given us outside of his design. We wage war not only against our creator and his authority, but we ultimately wage war against self. Consider for a moment, let's just take this a bit further and deal with it in the light of the gospel. Because Ephesians chapter five makes it abundantly clear that they will be one flesh and that one flesh union is meant to represent the glory of God. It's meant to represent the gospel of God. And then we begin to take the good gift that God has given to illustrate, if you will, the beauty of the gospel. And we treat it like it's useless. We treat it like it's nothing altogether. And then all of a sudden we're surprised when we find ourselves harmed by our own immorality. Now, I told you that this particular text is not just about sexual morality. It actually is more about idolatry. But it is interesting that as it is with dishonoring our bodies and our creator through sexual immorality, so it is with dishonoring ourselves and our creator through idolatry. So how does idolatry dishonor the body and the creator? Because it does do just that. And what you'll notice is these things are almost perfectly parallel. It removes all that is God, good, godly and good by the rejection of God's command for worship. One of the things that we are about here at Mercy Hill Church is the regulative principle of worship. We worship the way that God has positively commanded us to worship. Now you perhaps say, ah, oh, but there are other means of worship. Can I give you a couple of illustrations of men who desire to worship in their own in their own way? They said, oh, well, this is the worship that we should give to God. We'll give him the credit, but we'll do it in our own way. Can I give you just two examples? One in particular, and I imagine all of us are familiar with this, is Exodus chapter 32, verses four through six. This is the story of Aaron. Moses' brother, is, Moses is on top of the mountain receiving the commandments. Aaron is with the people and Aaron decides, I'm gonna build a golden calf. In Exodus 32, verses four through six, hear it. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are the God, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And let's take a pause here because I think we normally look at this verse and we say, oh, 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 what he's doing is he's worshiping a false god. That's not what he's doing. What you see him doing is saying, I'm going to worship God in a way that he has not prescribed or designed. Because it goes on to say, he says that this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. And then he goes on, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said this, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's the divine name. Aaron's desire was to please the Lord, but he aimed to do it in his own fashion. And what ultimately is the result? Curses. Because God has designed a certain means by which we are to worship. And to take an ax to that is to essentially look at his authority the way that he has described and designed for us to worship and say, we can find a better way. How do you think that's not offensive to our God? And then going on a bit further, there are two sons of Aaron that think, oh, we can make our way into the Holy of Holies. We see the priests do it. And actually they had to some degree a priestly line that would perhaps be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And they knew the certain route. They knew they needed coal on a censer so they could walk in and there would be something to guard them from, their, uh, from the glory of God so that they would not be immediately put to death. But they walk in with coal that is not the coal that God has prescribed and what immediately occurs. They're put to death. God cares about his design. God cares about his prescriptions. God cares about the way in which we engage in sexual intimacy. God cares about the way in which we worship. 
And so when you look at this particular text and we see this trading up, I do want us to see that there are people, and I have literally heard people say, but it's a monogamous relationship. God has barred it behind a covenant. God has barred his worship behind his prescription. And we'll see later on what that actually looks at, looks like. But what you see here is the rejection of his authority and saying, we will do it the way that we see fit. Brothers and sisters, that is an assault on his authority. It is idolatry. Going a bit further, it removes all that is godly and good by taking an act that was intended for good and using it for evil. Now, let's perhaps say that we were to gather here on this day, as there are many around the world who do just now, and they begin to worship him. Brothers and sisters, their worship might not look too different from ours. It might look very similar. It might actually be step for step the same liturgy. But they worship a figment of their imagination. They worship one who is unworthy of that worship. And they take what is good, even a good and right liturgy, the way that God prescribes himself to be worshiped, but they worship an idol. They worship one who is unfit for their worship. And they immediately degrade this physical act. And I think perhaps all the more we see it as iniquitous. Even looking back up, can you imagine this altar that's laid out and they begin to to worship it. They begin to praise it. And perhaps even those sections of that looked correct but they were not because they worshiped an idol. They worshiped a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They've waged a war against it. But then lastly, it removes all that is godly and good by giving worship to those who are unworthy. I want you to notice this particular text that we find. It says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is an interesting parallel that we find in Genesis. What did God place underneath the feet of man? Who is man to bow to? You know, the angels would not receive the worship from men. Angels rejected it altogether. It was a perverse thing because brothers and sisters, man is meant to bow to one. And what's most interesting about this is this this folly of idolatry would take that which God has placed underneath our boot and cause us to bow to it. The reality is that God has designed man to express dominion and authority. And when we bow to things that we are to have authority over, we subjugate the image of God to creatures. That was never his design. We take the good gift of God and we say, oh, no, 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 this worship that you've given us, we want to do it. We, we, we have a desire to do it. And brothers and sisters, it is important to note that man has a natural inclination to worship. It is a natural response of man. It is built in us to worship something outside of ourselves. And the perversity of it is when we begin to give it to one who is unworthy in the exact same way that adultery or fornication does that. It gives yourself to one who is unworthy altogether, one who is not behind that glorious covenant. And so we offer ourselves freely to the creature. We subjugate ourselves to rocks and sticks and animals and we bow before them. Or perhaps you would perhaps make an idol that's a bit more acceptable today. You bow before wealth or prosperity or health or whatever that may be. And you think, ah, this is my God, brothers and sisters. It is in subjection to the image of God. Never should the creature bow to any but its creator. And so this this, this form of sexual morality and ultimately idolatry, it assaults all that is godly and good. It wages a war against it. And it says, I will have all that you've prescribed to me, all that you've given to me as a gift, but I will have it completely, completely detached from your rules, from your regulations, from your prescriptions, which essentially exalts the gift above the giver. It says, I will have the gift, but I'd care nothing for the giver. Now, 
I think that we can all see that and perhaps we can even identify with the, with the sexual morality and we can identify with the idolatry, but there's one going on a bit further. And this is in Romans chapter one, verse 26 through 27. And we see here this exact same living illustration, but it is perhaps even more exalted, if you will, or perhaps denigrated. Romans chapter one, verse 26 through 27, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, first, there are some that would take this particular text and they would make an argument that this is not the relationships that we have today. Essentially, the argument is the relationships that we have today in regard to homosexuality is monogamous, loving relationships, and God never condemns those. Brothers and sisters, this language is abundantly clear. And to be real honest, I can't even do a full and clear exposition of this text and another in mixed company. It's that clear. We know exactly what this text teaches. And any assault on that is not an assault on this particular text. It's assault on the authority of God. It's quite clear that this text clearly condemns homosexuality as sin and goes a bit further and says that it receives in itself a due penalty for their error, that there is bodily harm. But let me say this. When we look at this particular text, this is a, a hot button issue most certainly, but brothers and sisters, we must understand that God has already ruled. God has ruled on this issue and we must cling fast to his ruling. I'll never forget the day that the Obergefell decision came out and immediately I began to hear grumbles amongst Christians and, and even begin to see people. One in particular guy in North Tennessee said that he had a revelation from the Lord that the Lord now approved of this sin. The higher court has already ruled. God's authority stands and it has already ruled. But let me say this, there is a secondary assault in, in regard to this issue and it is an assault on identity. That there is a unique identity attached to, uh, attached to sexuality to such a degree that you are your sexuality. Hear me when I say this. You have two ultimate identities or two possibilities for identities. Your identity is rooted in Adam, first and foremost. Your identity is rooted in the one who fell, who was ultimately, he fell, he was, he was condemned in sin. And then secondly, if we are in him, then we are born in his trespass and we take on that original sin and we will be found guilty before God. The other identity is Christ. He is our true identity. And so hear me when I say this, brothers and sisters, we must reclaim our understanding of identity. We must reclaim and, and reclaim rightly the fact that men are born in their trespasses and sins and worthy of death, but praise be to God that there are texts like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Adam, but hear this, and such were some of you. We have, we have, we have so relegated identity to sexual orientation that we have essentially robbed God of his ability to wash us clean. I want you to hear this next phrase, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, I think every single one of us can look at this particular list and say, I find myself there. But if you find yourself here this morning in Christ, then we can say with great confidence, but I was washed, I was sanctified, I have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There is no sin so wicked that Christ's blood cannot cleanse. There is no trespass so great that he cannot bridge the gap. There is no iniquity so wicked that he cannot cleanse and make us right. 
And we do well to remember that when we deal with any in particular sin. And the beauty is, this is the message given to the homosexual is the same message given to the sexually immoral, to the adulterers, to the thieves, to the greedy, to the drunkards. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses and it is the same gospel for every soul. Now, back to our topic at hand. How does then this, how does homosexuality dishonor the body and the creator? Because it does do both of these things very similarly, similarly to the way that sexual immorality does. First, and I want you to hear this, it removes all that is natural, godly, and good. There is a natural inclination of man given at creation. There is a natural bend to him. I've already mentioned that there's a natural inclination to worship something outside of himself, but it is also a natural inclination to have sexual relations with, with uh, your opposite. And here we look and there is something degrading altogether by the removal of what is natural. So here are a couple of ways that we do this. It removes all that is natural, godly, and good by denying God's creative order. It is interesting, isn't it? That when we look at Genesis chapter one, verse 28, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God has an original design in creation. And we should first and foremost, look at that and be glad and exult and praise the Lord for his faithfulness in creation. But what homosexuality does is it essentially looks at God's creative order and says, no, no. I deny your creative order altogether. I will find a different way. But what's interesting about this is that creative order is necessary. And hear me, necessary to fulfill the creation command. Just notice what the scripture says going on. The whole premise is that we might be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Homosexuality essentially denies the creative order, which ultimately means that it cannot fulfill God's creative demand. It removes all that is natural, godly, and good by rejecting God's creative command. It says, no, we deny this altogether. We, will, we make no aim to fulfill it. We will have all the gifts that you give in our own way and we will cast you out even from the command. So it removes the possibility of procreation and dominion. It removes God's creation intent. But lastly, it removes all that is natural, godly, and good by the dishonoring and shaming of their own bodies to their own harm. What is most interesting about this is, and we'll see this in the next little portion, but the whole concept is I will have myself. I will have myself. I will have what is my mirror image. That is what entices me. And this is what we often miss in regard to homosexuality, that it is essentially the exaltation of self. It's looking for not one who is your opposite, who is your complement. It's looking for one who is the exact same. It is the highest form of idolatry, which ultimately is self-worship. Now going on, because I think we'll see the correlation. Just as it is with the dishonoring our bodies and our creator through homosexuality, so it is with dishonoring ourselves and our creator through self-worship. So how is that displayed? First, it removes all that is natural, godly, and good in man by denying a key tenet of his design. That is to worship something outside of himself. The natural inclination of man. Isn't it interesting how quickly we're snared by things that are outside of ourselves? Rarely do I feel that we are snared by the things that, it, that are ourselves. It always starts with what is exterior. And we begin to worship and bow to those things. And really in its full, full form, it begins self-worship. It denies what is natural in us. It says, no, I will not worship anything here below. I will bow to nothing. I will bow only to self. 
It is an exaltation of self to such a degree that we will worship only self, even to the point of waging war against what is natural in us. It removes all that is natural, godly, and good by bowing to no authority, not even natural law. If we look back at the beginning of this particular section in Romans 1, 1 through 20, it makes clear that there is a revelation that's proclaiming, that's making these things known. We call it general revelation, or perhaps even we would go to the extent of calling it natural law, that there is something inside of nature that dictates the way that we exchange sexual intimacy. There is a design to it. There is a design so clear, so prevalent that the denial of it is ultimately waging war against your own eyes because God has made it clear. He has made it known. We bow to no authority, not even natural law, which, is, which ultimately means that we will bow to one authority that is ourselves. Lastly, it removes all that is natural, godly, and good by worshiping the mirror image of self to their own destruction. And I do want us to see both of these two things lead to the destruction of man. The place that we see this most clearly is first and foremost in the inner man. We made reference to this last week that the assault of idolatry ultimately attacks the inner man's self. But when we begin to lay out or perhaps to display idolatry through sexual morality, it is no surprise to me at all that the very first thing harmed is the inner man. The very first thing assaulted is the emotional, the affectionate, all of those natural inclinations inside of man. And then they certainly do begin to give way to all types of bodily destruction. And the evidence is quite clear on that. I do not feel the need to make it known. There's a war against self here. We said last week that the, that the idolatry that we have in, a, in and of ourselves is a war against God that ultimately leads to our own destruction. And so we should not be surprised when the physical manifestation of idolatry does the exact same thing. It wages war against self to such a degree that it will lead us to our own destruction. These are the two illustrations that he lays out. He simply says in idolatry, we take the good commands of God and we remove all that is godly, all that is good and all that is natural from them. We wage a war against him. And brothers and sisters, remember, this is a war against him for he has designed it. His, his, his commission, his command in regard to sexual intimacy, in regard to the lot that he gives us, those things are meant to be recognized. We are to rejoice in his good design and then say, yes and amen, we will be obedient. We will worship you amidst your commands. Idolatry says we will have it our way. I genuinely think that our culture has done better than any culture on the planet that has ever existed, genuinely, in making idolatry and sexual immorality not only acceptable, and as Blake will deal with next week, we, we are so quick to give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Brothers and sisters, it matters not whether it be sexual immorality through fornication or, idolatry or, or, or adultery, and it matters not if it, be for, if it be sexual morality through homosexuality. These things are in opposition to our God because he has designed a good and clear command. And his good and clear command is to have these things as a good and precious gift. And instead we take the gift, we make it wicked. But what I'd like to do now is show you it's, it's good. Because essentially the two things that he's barred behind a covenant are sexual intimacy and worship. He's barred them behind a covenant. You will not have them rightly unless you enter into a covenant. And if I could, I want to start with marriage because I think that's the best place to begin. I want you to notice again Genesis 1.28. And I want you to see the beauty in this because this is where I think we really have had these, all of these images and all these ideas thrust upon us. And we hear the word love and you perhaps think, oh, well, I want to have love, but God defines that. God defines not only love in its, in, its, in its essence, but also in its expression. 
And so when we look at it from a Genesis 1 perspective, we need to reclaim what God calls beautiful. And so in Genesis 1.28, it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, Genesis 2.24 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God has set up a beautiful covenant for the purposes of obeying the commands of God and enjoying his good gifts. But he has barred it behind a covenant. Just to kind of give you, to kind of carry this forward, how does sexual intimacy and marriage honor the body and the creator? First, it upholds all that is good, natural, and godly. It literally is looking at God as he has designed things and says, yes. It says, yes, my desire is to honor you in the way that you have prescribed these things to be enjoyed. But let's go on to kind of see these things. First, it upholds all that is good, natural, and godly by delighting in the created order. It looks at Genesis chapter one, verse 26, where it says, male and female, he created them. It says, yes and amen. It looks at that and says, praise be to God for his goodness. Men, we should be like Adam when he lays, when he lays eyes on his wife, that he sings, yes, finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is his compliment. And in seeing that compliment, he exults. And who does he worship? He worships the God who created her. He worships the God who has designed these good and perfect gifts. The natural expression of being, of being sexually faithful to your spouse and, and observing these covenant, bond, these covenant bindings is saying, praise be to God for his goodness. It is looking there and saying, yes, you are right and good. And then not only that, it upholds all that is good, natural, and godly by fulfilling the creation command. It looks at the statement of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And it says, yes. We will fill the earth. We will subdue it. We will have children. We will bear fruit in this life. And it is a fruitful endeavor. It is interesting. If you run through this, the basic premise that's set up is fruitlessness and fruitfulness. Be fruitless in your worship and have nothing except death. Be fruitful in your worship and honor the Lord and have life and life more abundant. So it is with marriage. Be fruitful and multiply. And it looks at that creation, or, creation command and it says, yes and amen, we will obey to your glory. And lastly, it upholds all that is good, natural, and godly by reserving the body for whom God intended it. It says, my body is of great value, dignity, and worth. Brothers and sisters, this is really the assault. The body that God has given us is of great value, dignity, and worth. And it is reserved, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, that God has created the body for himself. And secondly, we look at his creative order and we must know that it is created for our spouse alone at that point. For the Lord and for spouse that's why we see this language and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what is interesting about this is the great discrepancy behind covenant here is that if you have these things committing the exact same physical acts outside of this covenant, God abhors it, abhors, that word hates it. But that physical act inside of covenant marriage, I want you to read you, read you this. And this is the first time you'll ever hear me quote Song of Solomon chapter five. Because it really is a rather interesting section. When we understand that God's good gift is for our good and for our delight, at the end of the wedding night that we see in, in, in Song of Solomon, verse five, I mean, chapter five, verse one, this is the refrain. And there are some who would take Song of Solomon as allegory, which I do. Um, and essentially what this is, is God giving some pronouncement. Of God giving some pronouncement outside of the act of physical intimacy, inside of marriage, this is his refrain. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. 
He says it's a good gift and it's meant to be enjoyed inside of marriage. And not only is it meant to be enjoyed inside of marriage, he essentially says frequently. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's the command. This is what God has designed for us, that we would see his command, that we would worship amidst them, and that we would be faithful to obey the commands. Now, we must understand that that is not all that's expressed in this. I want you to go a little bit further. Observation. So, so it is with right worship. God has established a covenant with his people so that they might enjoy the right worship of God to his glory and their delight. Worship is meant to be the greatest thrill of the soul here below. It is. It is meant to be the greatest thrill of the soul. It is meant to be our highest good, our highest delight, our highest joy is worshiping our creator. But brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to see. Just as God has barred sexual immorality outside the covenant, God has also barred worship outside of the new covenant that he has established with his people. There's one right means of worship. The reason that these men like Aaron and his sons were killed as they walked in is because they did not enter in the way that God has prescribed. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to have the greatest joy of life here below, we must understand that it is barred behind the covenant of Christ. The only means by which we can enter in into worship where God will say over our worship, eat friends, drink and be drunk with love is if we come by way of Christ. And if we come by way of Christ, then he will invite us in again and again and again and again. And even to the extent where he tells us worship without any form of ceasing, enjoy the worship and delight of God day in and day out because it is a good gift. The reason that we see worship and sexual intimacy as expressed in idolatry is because we love the gift, but we hate the giver. The true expression, the true delight of these things is exalting the giver by the gift, is seeing the gift and saying, praise be to God who is worthy of praise and honor and glory and coming in the way that he has prescribed. And so what is worship? Worship is looking at the gift and saying, I will use it the way that you have prescribed and in no other way. And I will delight in it. And I will delight in it again and again and again to your glory, to fulfill your command, to obey your decrees. This is why we see this language scattered throughout of sexual intimacy and its correlation with idolatry. Brothers and sisters, God has given good gifts. Our natural and most, the most right use of them or an observation of his glory and saying to you and to you alone, be whatever gift you have given me should result in your praise, glory, and honor. It looks at the giver and says, you are infinitely better than any gift that you bestow.